0: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Kim. Over 100,000 people in the U.S. died from drug overdoses last year, more than two-thirds of them caused by fentanyl. In a new investigative series, the Washington Post digs into the deadly impact of fentanyl and why a lack of cooperation between Mexico and the U.S. is making it harder to crack down on fentanyl cartels. We'll be joined by three reporters who worked on the series, titled Cartel Rx, to hear about their investigation and what's being done to stem the deadly tide of fentanyl coming from Mexico to the streets of big cities across the country. That's next on Forum, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer in for Mina Kim. Fentanyl was responsible for two-thirds of U.S. drug overdoses deaths in 2021. That's a number that's nearly doubled since 2019. That is according to analysis and reporting from a new Washington Post series called Cartel Rx. It explores how the synthetic opioid fentanyl is killing people and devastating communities and how easy it is to mass manufacture and smuggle it into the U.S. from Mexico. It's also a story about years of failure by U.S. authorities and presidential administrations of both parties and how that's contributed to the growing tragedy. This hour, we're joined by three of the Washington Post reporters who worked on the series. Let me tell you who's with us. Nick Miroff is a reporter covering the Department of Homeland Security for The Post. Nick, good morning. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. And two of his colleagues, two investigative reporters, Scott Haim and Sari Horowitz with The Washington Post as well. Thank you all for being with us. Good morning, Scott.
2: Good morning. Great to be with you.
0: Let me begin with you, Sari. Uh, your reporting uh, takes readers to Colorado in an unimaginable tragedy that unfolded there one night or early one morning. Tell us about that.
2: Well, we wanted to put faces on these staggering numbers that you just mentioned at the top of the hour. We wanted to humanize this horrible epidemic. And so we told the story of six friends in Colorado who got together for a small party in one of their apartments on a cold weekend night in February. They were all in their 20s and 30s. They had jobs and families. They had children. Some were related. And sometime in the early morning of Sunday, of president's weekend, they used cocaine and they all suddenly dropped. What they didn't know is that the cocaine they snorted was laced with fentanyl, which is something we're seeing across the country. These sort of mass fentanyl poison, poisonings were several people um, who think they're using cocaine or meth or heroin don't know it's laced with fentanyl, and they all die. Hmm.
0: And just tell us, uh, you know, why is fentanyl so deadly? Uh, You know, uh, I mean, cocaine over the decades has been cut with various things, including things like, you know, harmless fillers like baking powder or baking soda, I guess. Uh, What is it about fentanyl that is so dangerous?
2: Fentanyl is up to 50 times more powerful than heroin. And under, you know, proper medical supervision, it's extremely effective for for treating severe pain because of its ability to depress the central nervous system. And it's used in hospitals. It's used in uh, nursing homes. It's used in hospice. But uh, illicit fentanyl, when too much of that hits the bloodstream, it can quickly trigger respiratory failure and cardiac arrest. It reduces your blood pressure. It slows you're breathing and fluid fills your lungs and that lack of oxygen uh, damages the brain. And it happens very quickly with just a small amount.
0: Hmm. Well, I'm thinking about that scene in Colorado, I mean, they were all with, uh, you know, they were all like passed out dead. Uh, I mean, so it must, ha- they must have all used it within a short period of time and it just knocked them right out. Right. I mean, there was no time for anyone to say, Hey, what's wrong here, call nine one one.
2: Exactly. Investigators believe they used it probably sometime like two in the morning. They're basing this on the cameras of uh, neighbors who who showed when people were coming to the party. And they dropped so suddenly that none of them were able to use their cell phones. None of them, they obviously were using it all around the same time. And none of them were able to call for help. And it wasn't until 12 hours later that the sisters of one of the, the sister of one of the men went to the apartment because neither he or his partner were answering their cell phones. And she opened, her name was Selena. She opened the unlocked door and found five of them dead. Mm. One of them, there were six altogether, woke up when she came in and amazingly survived. Mm. The the really heartbreaking thing also is that there was a baby, a four-month-old baby, in another room. Um, her parents both died, um, and she was crying. She had been left alone for twelve hours. You know, the death of those five friends that night left seven children without a parent.
0: Wow! And Nick, give us a bigger picture. Take us outside, beyond Colorado, uh, and give us a uh, paint a picture for us about how fentanyl is affecting the country and small towns, big cities, you know, all from coast to coast.
3: Yeah, I mean this has become the most lethal narcotics crisis in in US history and I don't think anyone um has quite, you know, appreciated just how fast this has come on and the degree to which things worsened um during the pandemic really when the country was so distracted and 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 hurting in so many ways. Um but, you know, you cited those fatality statistics. Um, you know, we're looking at more than 100,000, 107,000 annual overdose deaths about two-thirds of those are fentanyl um oftentimes mixed in with other things as as Terry was was mentioning um and you know that means that that fentanyl today uh, is killing more Americans than car accidents than gun violence than suicides um the drug is the is now the leading cause of death for um, uh, adults ages 18 to 49. And um, you know, th- this is this has come up you know so so fast that that's really left the federal government scrambling to formulate some kind of effective response. And uh, it has certainly left uh, homeland security agencies and and border authorities really um, uh, overwhelmed uh, along the Mexico border, where the quantities that are that are coming across that are being seized, uh, are just breaking new records every month.
0: And Nick, you reported yesterday that the DEA said that it had seized more than 379 million potentially fatal doses of illegal fentanyl this year. That's you know, more than one for every single person in the US. Uh, and yeah. yet that's still a tiny percentage of what's out there.
3: That's right. I mean, I mean, so keep in mind that includes 50 million uh, tablets you know those 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 fake uh uh oxycodone tablets primarily um it it includes you know tens of thousands of pounds of powder and the DEA statistics released yesterday with which are which are basically enough doses to kill every every person in the United States they don't even include the the huge quantities seized at the border by by CBP you know just last month CBP reported Nearly three thousand pounds of, of fentanyl seizures. So that's more than uh, in one in one month than they were seizing in an entire year just a few years ago. Hmm. Um, so it's just it's just it's flooding it's flooding you know American communities in in cities in rural areas. Uh, it's incredibly cheap um, and you know law enforcement officials along the border told us they really don't know how much they're not. Detecting, but they estimate that they're they're probably only catching about five to ten percent of what's coming into the country.
0: And is that partly because it's so hard to to find either through scanning or technology or dogs, um, because it's it's much more compact than say cocaine.
3: It is. It's very it's very compact. It's very easy to smuggle and. You know, the vast majority of it is coming through the official ports of entry, the the official border crossings. It's it's hidden in passenger vehicles, in commercial trucks. Um, and you know, while PBP is making huge efforts to try to detect it with dogs, with scanning technology, they're they're really years behind. And and you know, there were folks who recognized that this was becoming a big threat years ago and 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 really wanted the agency to to rapidly ramp up uh, the kind of scanning technology it would need to detect more of the this illegal fentanyl um, and yet you know this was during a time when 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 Washington was focused on building a border wall and, and a border wall is essentially useless for for stopping the the fentanyl that's being smuggled in this way
0: and, and Sarah, you mentioned that the the people in Colorado and many others who die from fentanyl, poisoning, uh, that they didn't know there was fentanyl in there. So people aren't going out necessarily and looking to buy fentanyl. Is that correct?
2: Well, no, there are people looking at, looking to go out and buy fentanyl, and that's why the dealers keep selling it. You know, this is a question we're all asked a lot is, if people are dying, um, if all the customers are dying, why do the dealers keep selling fentanyl? And it's because all the customers are not dying. Those people who have a tolerance for opioids who have used um, opioids before um, or who are addicts uh, still want it because it's such an incredible high. Um, and the people who are most at risk are people who don't take a lot of drugs, people who might take drugs recreationally or at a party in high school or college, you know, young people who are unwittingly taking fentanyl when they think they're taking cocaine. But in answer to your question, there are a lot of people who have a tolerance, who have built up a tolerance, and we have a story in our series about someone named Jose in um, in Tijuana who is an addict and basically lives his day uh, searching for ways to to buy more fentanyl. Mm -hmm. Why would
0: dealers or these cartels? Why would they put a deadly amount of fentanyl in cocaine? Like what's in? Why would they do that? Sorry.
2: Because it's not always deadly. Because. Uh, first of all, they're taking advantage of the fact it's cheap, and it has this 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 high potency, um, and it delivers a more powerful high for those who can tolerate it. And so it keeps addicted clients coming back uh, for more. And and let me just say, and we have a line in our story about this, you know, like the way that people put chocolate chips in cookies. Uh, there's no recipe for this. They don't know exactly how much is going into each. Pill or into the powder, and so some of the mixed drugs have more fentanyl than others.
0: Yeah, and Sarah, the uh, the law enforcement in Colorado, uh, as you have reported, tried to find who sold this deadly uh, cocaine to this group of folks, and th- they they didn't. Right? I mean, did they? Did, had, they never have.
2: No, they tried hard. The local police in Commerce City, Colorado, where this happened. And federal investigators also launched this massive investigation uh, that lasted many months, but they ran into what we called a messy forensic jigsaw puzzle. Three bags of cocaine were brought into the apartment that night uh, by the people who gathered there. Two of them were laced with fentanyl. One was not. Um, they believe that the five, as, as we've said, did not overdose, but were poisoned, but they were unable to match the fentanyl they found To one particular person or to two people, they just couldn't do
0: it. Yeah. All right. Hold that thought uh, because we're seeing something similar here in San Francisco where the DA, the new DA, is threatening to bring murder charges against dealers, but so far has not been able to do that for one reason or another. All right. We are going to continue our conversation with uh, Nick Miroff, Scott Hyam, and Sari Horowitz from The Washington Post about their series on fentanyl. And we want to hear from you. Give us a call at 866-733-6786.
1: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home,
4: Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
0: And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim. And we're talking about the fentanyl epidemic, really, uh, in the United States, with three Washington Post reporters who have completed a very comprehensive series about the topic. Nick Miroff, a reporter covering the Department of Homeland Security for the Post, Scott Hyam, investigative reporter, and Sari Horowitz, also an investigative reporter. We want to hear from you. What are your questions about the fentanyl epidemic? How has it affected your life? You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum or give us a call if you'd like right now at 866-733-6786. Scott Haim, let me bring you into this Um, what role uh, is there for the drug industry in all of this? Because, uh, as you write, this sort of stems back to when the U.S. sort of cracked down on opioids. Um, and, and this is going back several years. Draw, you know, connect those dots for us. Yeah, that's a great, great question, idea. Scott. Um, you know, it's really important to understand the origin story
5: of the fentanyl epidemic. And the origin story begins with the U.S. drug industry, Uh um, manufacturers, distributors, and 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 pharmacy chains that were involved in in basically the opioid trade, uh, painkillers were were being uh, uh, dispensed and manufactured and distributed by the hundreds of millions. Uh, a lot of people got addicted, and you know when a lot of people think about the opioid epidemic, they you know they think about Purdue Pharma and their drug OxyContin. Uh, Sari and I uh, did an extensive investigation, that resulted in, in a book called American Cartel, and, and we found that that there were other companies that uh, that were much more deeply involved in the opioid trade than Purdue Pharma. Um, uh, There's one company that that we had never heard of before called Mallincrot, out of St. Louis. It's one of the oldest pharmaceutical companies. Uh, in, in the country, uh, and they manufactured three times the amount of uh, of, of drugs that Purdue Pharma and their their pain pill became the most popular on the streets of America, on the black market, and it was a thirty milligram blue oxycodone tablet with an M on one side and a thirty on the other. Then there are other companies that were involved: uh, Walgreens, CVS, Walmart. You know, all these companies now have gotten into enormous amounts of trouble. Uh, they were sued by nearly 4,000 communities that were ravaged by the prescription pain pill epidemic and they have now consented to pay about 40 to $50 billion um, to help these communities and to settle out of these cases. But when the DEA started cracking down on these companies and the lawsuits started getting filed, uh, the companies changed their behavior. It became much harder uh, to find these pills on the streets and Mexican cartels, whatever you think of them, are very crafty, really smart. And they saw a ready market in the United States for, uh, for, uh, for opioids and fentanyl is an opioid. It's the same exact uh, uh, drug molecular structure as oxycodone or hydrocodone um, and uh, except for, Sari and Nick said, it's 50 times more potent than heroin. Yeah. And so at first the cartel started sending heroin into the United States and, and heroin's kind of a dirty drug and you have to inject it and it wasn't really catching on. And then they decided to start manufacturing fentanyl. And now the number one pill that, the, that is flooding the streets of America is a counterfeit Mallinckrodt 30 milligram pill and so that company is now the the kind of the marketing tool being used by the cartel to uh, to sell fentanyl to the American public. And, and, and just so to be clear, so are,
0: is Big Pharma involved in this problem at all, or is this something the cartels are really you know mostly responsible for?
5: You know the you know the, the pharmaceutical industry, U.S. drug industry, has walked away. They they they've they've paid their fines and uh, and and they've moved on. Uh, but what they left behind was a was a market of millions and millions of people who were addicted to opioids with nowhere to turn. And the cartels, um, you know, saw a, a, a ready market and it was, uh, the table was set for them and they just started flooding the United States with fentanyl. Yeah, And that's, that's what brings us to this moment, uh, the worst moment in, in American history when it comes to, to, to drugs.
0: And you write in the series that uh, this is really based on a series of, and I'm quoting here, strategic blunders and cascading mistakes, Uh, going all the way back to the Bush administration. And I I assume that's George W. Bush. But, you know, tell us, like, were these mistakes, uh, you know, deliberate? Were they, I mean, not deliberate, were they like a a choice that that administrations made? Uh, Describe what these blunders were.
5: Yeah, they're not deliberate, but they're you know they are bureaucratic blunders. They're missteps. They're uh, not paying attention. I mean, one of the one of the first uh, uh, things that that happened that we document in our series is that the, the yes, the, the George W. Bush administration really failed to crack down on the U.S. drug companies and their behavior of uh, of, of sending massive amounts of opioids into the streets of America, um, and then when. Um, uh, when the uh, when the Bush uh, after the Bush administration, uh, the Obama administration came in, and uh, that's when the crackdown began on the on drug uh, companies. And the DEA did its job and cracked down on those companies. But the administration kind of failed to predict what was going to happen when you have you know tens of millions of people who are addicted to opioids with no place to turn. And uh, the Obama administration also removed the drug czar from the cabinet. It was originally a cabinet. Level position, and, and that Drug czar's office is responsible for coordinating basically the, the federal government's response to um, to uh, drug epidemics. And so they, so the Obama administration booted the the, the Drug czar out of out of uh, out of that of the cabinet, and then when uh, the Trump administration came in. Uh, they were heavily focused on on building a wall uh, along the southern border that said that they, you know would stop not just immigration but also illegal drugs. But as Nick pointed out, uh, most of the fentanyl is coming into the United States is coming through official ports of entry. There are no walls there. Uh, this is where you know more than a hundred thousand vehicles are crossing into the United States every single day, and you know trying to. Uh, stop fentanyl uh, from coming in when it's hidden in, you know cars and trucks and and people are carrying it in backpacks people who walk across the border every day is just an impossible task and you know being down the southern border and and and, and embedding with the drug agents and the state uh da's office and other people i mean they are trying their best and working so hard uh one of the guys that we embedded with uh he it's a federal drug agent for the Homeland Security uh, Investigations uh, um, uh, office, and he went to almost 500 fentanyl deaths in the San Diego region, trying to piece these cases together and trace them back to the drug dealers and and maybe even to the cartels. And you know, it, after a while, he just you know he, he saw so much death and 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 so little accountability coming out of Washington. That you know, he kind of threw up his hands and said, "You know, where's the outrage?" And I guess that's the big question that a lot of people are asking: is like, where is the outrage? I, you know, the Biden administration uh, has not uh, included the drug czar into into uh, into the cabinet, and and the administration doesn't really talk a whole lot about uh, how many people are dying. And you know, it's the equivalent of of a, of a Boeing jet crashing every single day, killing all. People on board, and can you imagine if yeah. that was happening today? I mean, people would be calling for investigation.
0: And yeah, uh, well, I want to play um, uh, a clip that uh, the Washington Post did as part of this series, but I want to give out the phone number. First, if you want to join us, it's 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also email your comments to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're talking about Cartel Rx. It's a new Washington Post investigative series that examines the multiple factors behind fentanyl's deadly surge in the U.S. Three Washington Post reporters are with us, Nick Miroff, Scott Hyam, and Sari Horowitz. All right, let's play a little clip. This is uh, from San Diego, and we're going to hear the district attorney down there, Summer Stefan. In
6: 2019, we had 152 overdose deaths from fentanyl in San Diego County. Twenty twenty, that number went to four hundred and sixty-two. And then in one more year, twenty twenty-one, we had eight hundred and seventeen overdose deaths from fentanyl.
7: Fentanyl cases on the rise throughout San Diego County. Officials say they see
3: more than sixty seven hundred pounds of the synthetic opioid.
6: We didn't get ahead of fentanyl.
0: And Scott Hyam, that is a problem that uh San Diego's facing, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Colorado. You know, this doesn't seem like a problem local officials can can solve on their own, right? I mean, they're kind of dealing with the, you know, the collateral damage.
5: You know, that's exactly right, uh, Scott. You know, th- this, at first, started hitting a lot of small towns. It actually first hit small towns in New Hampshire and Vermont and Massachusetts, uh, and, and the cartels are, are heavily involved in the drug trade up there. And then you know, it started really taking off there and, and then it, it started, you know, going to other hot spots in the country where there was a prescription pain pill epidemic. So West Virginia, Ohio, et cetera. And now it's, you know, in, in every major city. And 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 you're absolutely right, Scott. People like uh, you know uh, DA Summers are, are are calling for the cavalry. You know, where is the cavalry? Where is the federal government? Where where is you know where is the help? And, and they feel like they're not getting it. They feel like they're doing everything they can on the local level um, and, and, and they need the, they need the, the full force of the federal government, the White House, the Department of Homeland Security, the DEA, all of these agencies to come together and to put together a cohesive strategy that is A, going to, you know, attack the supply lines, but B, is going to, you know, attack the demand and try to get people into treatment, try to get them to stop uh, taking this drug, and that's that's a... That's a high bar, because once you stop t- start taking fentanyl, it's, it's really hard to stop.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's go to the phones. And again, the number to call if you want to join us is 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And let's start in Los Gatos. And Tom, welcome to Forum.
8: Oh, thank you, Scott. Great show. And great. thanks for taking my call. Uh, yeah, I think this all started basically when uh, our country uh, signed the trade agreements with uh, Mexico and Central American countries, which put millions of corn farmers out of business in Mexico and Central American nations, they lost their livelihood, the farmers, uh, their property, and sometimes, of course, their family members if they were murdered. And so, all the battles have been going on down there. But uh, it seems that if you realize that prohibition didn't work, you know, in the twenties, the Roaring Twenties. It doesn't work now, so we have to uh, legalize and medicalize all drugs, whether in the Americas and even around the world. So people, when they're drug addicts, they have medical supervision 24 hours a day, seven days a week uh, to prevent uh, deaths and, and manage uh, this as a social and medical problem, not as the international crisis and start a war It's strange because we were in Afghanistan for 20 years. They were growing, you know, (laughs) opium poppies practically under their houses, and uh, we didn't do anything because uh, the main victims were, of course, the Russians and other Eastern Europeans.
0: Well, let me ask uh, because I want to ask. Yeah, excuse me. I want to ask Nick. you know, or or any of you really, but I'll put it to Nick first. the, the you know, the, we said at the beginning that uh, fentanyl has is, is manufactured and it's replaced plant-based drugs like heroin um and cocaine. What difference does that make in all of this?
3: Well, that's a big part of this story. I mean, this the rise of fentanyl is partly the story of the the cartels transitioning from plant-based uh, narcotics and drugs like, cocaine, marijuana, and heroin that require, uh, you know, uh, you know, hiring farmers and controlling land and, and, you know, bribing a ton of people and all of those types of things that we typically associate with cartel activity in Mexico or Colombia. They have now transitioned into uh, basically a, a chemical based production model that, um, you know, sees them bringing in precursor chemicals primarily from ch- China. And then, you know, as long as you have somebody who can who can, uh, you know, make the product, who can who can work in in a a small makeshift laboratory, um, you can crank out essentially industrial quantities of this stuff whenever you want um, on your own schedule, whenever, you know, the the, the market demand, you know, calls for it. That's made it much harder to detect. That's made the cartel's footprint smaller um, and it's also increased their their profit margins. Um, so, you know, this is a, a, a complete revolution in the way that the illegal drug trade really operates. And and that's one of the many things that that, you know, U.S. law enforcement is still catching up to.
0: And to Tom point the caller's point about Mexico, uh, he mentioned uh, trade agreements, but there there has been um uh, an odd relationship, it seems to me, a change in relationship between the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, Trump was sort of close to their very popular leader. Uh, and uh, now it seems like the relationship is such that there isn't as much cooperation as they would like uh, to, to crack down on this. Is that correct, Nick?
3: Somewhat. I mean, I wouldn't say that the Trump and the Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, were, were close. Um, uh, they they, they, they
0: collaborated on on some of yeah. the migration immigration stuff, right?
3: I mean, I mean, partly what's, what what we're trying to the the story we're telling in in this series is that is that the rise of fentanyl and the, and the explosion of this epidemic also coincides with a major rift in the U.S. Mexico drug partnership. And for for ten years, you know, starting really in the George W. Bush administration, um, you know, we had the as, as some of your listeners remember something called the Merida agreement, the Merida Initiative, and it was basically uh, a joint agreement to, to really uh, attack the cartels head on. And that involved, uh, you know, the Mexican military working with the DEA and U.S. intelligence, um, uh, the, you know, the United States supplying training helicopters, that type of thing, but really kind of, a, a you know, a, a more confrontational approach. And by the time López Obrador was running for office in, in 2018, he was offering something different. He was questioning this this agreement. He was he was pointing to the, the you know, the rising uh, toll that it was taking on Mexico and, and blaming more of this on American demand for drugs. And so as he you know, he comes in this this relationship with the United States that had been in place for about 10 years really falls apart right at the moment that the cartels are ma- making the transition i was talking about and and you know that has that has facilitated this explosion of smuggling and and it's you know it's only now 3 years later more than 3 years since he's gotten in that that the us and mexico have renegotiated a new security agreement but during that 3 year period in which they were talking about a, a lot of these things um there was a uh, A lot of distance, and the cartels ruthlessly exploited that. Yeah. Let's play another
0: uh, short clip from this Washington Post series. Uh, This is a cut from uh, San Diego Police Lieutenant Ken Impelizzeri.
1: If I had one wish,
3: it would be that the the fentanyl would just stop. There's a lot of other drugs out there, but this one is the most deadly. It's the most dangerous drug, um, illicit drug that I've seen in my
1: career. And it's not even close.
3: Scott Haim, why has San
0: Diego become ground zero for this? Is it just that it's such a huge border crossing? Is there any other reason for that?
5: Uh, You know, that's a great question, Scott. I mean, like we were saying before, you know, initially the cartels were moving uh, fentanyl into the northeast and into the into the uh, into Appalachia and, and all those places. And and now I think it's just the proximity of of. San Diego to uh to Tijuana, to San Ysidro, that official border crossing to Ote Mesa, another huge border crossing uh south of San Diego. And so much of it is coming across the border. And um and and it's just a natural progression of things that uh it, it's starting to spill onto the streets uh there and, and it has been. Uh, You know, since 2017, 2016, they started seeing it coming in into the community and into San Diego. And now it's just it's really exploded and taken off. And uh, some of the drug agents believe that that a lot of the fentanyl that is being trafficked in uh, the San Diego area is actually being carried across by, um, by uh, you know, by, by,
0: by carriers yeah. used to get backpacks. I, I, I need to stop you there because we need to take a quick break. Uh, just give us a call, though, if you want to talk about this. We've got a lot of listener comments as well. I'll get to some of those after the break. 866-733-6786. More to come.
1: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission.
0: And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today for me and Kim. We're talking about Cartel Rx a new Washington Post investigative series that examines the many factors behind fentanyl's deadly surge in the U.S. Three of its authors are with us, uh, Nick Miroff, who covers the Department of Homeland Security for the Post, also Scott Hyam and Sari Horwitz, uh, two investigative reporters who worked on the series. Again, the number, if you want to join us, 866-733-6786. And let's go up to Marin. And John, you're next. Welcome.
5: Yeah, hi.
0: Hello. Can go, you hear me? Yeah, go right All ahead.
7: Right. Oh, okay. All right, yeah, I was wondering if there is some reliable way to find out if um, fentanyl is adulterating other drugs like cocaine or, or um, MDMA.
0: Sari, uh, I know that that was something that was discussed in your article about uh, Colorado, um, but to t- talk about how can people who use you know, drugs recreationally. How can they be sure they're they're not going to die from fentanyl poisoning?
2: Uh, yeah, that's a good question from from the listener, and and thank you, Scott. Um, you know, in the case of this party that we wrote about, um, they did they just took the drugs. They didn't do any kind of of testing. But there are test strips that are available, and um, you know, I've heard about them being on uh, ordered online. College kids order them. Kids in high school order them to try to test uh, the uh, the cocaine, for example, to see if there's fentanyl in it. So in some cases, um, that can greatly help um, to actually test the drugs.
0: And I think uh, like here in the Bay Area, some of the nonprofit uh, groups that work with uh, harm reduction, you know, they do have those uh, strips that you can get that you can uh, test the fentanyl. So Uh, you know, if that applies to you, uh, check that out. It is certainly uh, worth, you know, not worth taking a risk. Uh, Let's go back to the phones, and we're going to go next up to, or down to Santa Santa Clara, I should say, and Elvis. Welcome.
7: Hey, thank you. Uh, Thank you for uh, taking my call. So I come uh, from the perspective as both a medical practitioner and as well as a recovering addict, and it's I was struck by one of the authors' comments about uh, there is a, I think, a 747 crashing every day, um, in terms of the, the analogy of the number of deaths uh, due to fentanyl. And if there were that, you know, if that actually were taking place with planes, there would be an outcry. And the solution, obviously, with planes is much more straightforward than, um, and it seems that this conversation is mostly focused on the supply, aka kind of the the war on drugs, and I, I was hoping to shift it back to a micro-demand um, perspective where I was just curious to know, like, what resources really need to be put in place? Where is the ball being dropped? Other than per- persecuting Purdue and, and you know, vilifying the cartel and this, that, and the other, who are essentially just business people, how are we going to really seek meaningful treatments um, in our current society? Yeah. And I know that's a Big question, but I just was curious what the office.
0: No, it's for. an important question. Uh, Sari Horowitz, uh, we have, of course, Narcan, which can it's sort of a miracle antidote for people who have uh, overdosed on fentanyl can bring literally almost bring them back from the dead. But what else can be done to address demand?
2: You know, this is a very important question. Um, uh, our colleague Meryl Cornfield and I went out to Colorado and we talked to a lot of these families, these shattered families. Um, of the people who died. And one thing that struck us is many of them, and we're talking about you know people whose sons, daughters, partners died in that, at that party, they didn't know about fentanyl. As much as we <laughs> all have written about it and think that we're covering this issue a lot, many people in this country are not educated, especially young people um, in schools, are not educated about the dangers of fentanyl. And there needs to be a massive effort by state and local governments, federal government to to educate people. Um, treatment obviously is very important, but the education um, people aren't getting. We have a sheriff in, in our story that who talks about how uh, there was a mass poisoning uh, event in Florida and how they didn't even have the word fentanyl in their vocabulary down there. So it's not reaching, this coverage is not reaching a lot of areas and that's a, a huge problem.
0: Yeah. Elvis, thanks very much for that call. Let's uh, get to some listener comments here. Uh, Jim writes, no street drugs can be considered low risk anymore because there's no easy way to tell if they've been laced with fentanyl. There there are those strips, so that is one way to do that. Uh, Ron writes, who's now producing the fentanyl that goes into the black market? Um, Nick, I guess I'll put that to you.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's it's the, the cartels, the cartel operators they have they have, you know, chemists, uh, you know, some of them are, are actually trained chemists, but most of them are not. They get these chemicals. They set up a clandestine laboratory and somewhere typically in northern Mexico in the Sinaloa state or right there in Baja, California. I mean, you don't have to go um, that that far into Mexico. You can you can do it in an apartment. You can do it in a storage unit and you can you can crank out a ton of uh, of this stuff and, and take down your lab in a, in a few days before the you know, the cops swoop in. Why so, is it?
0: Why Mexico? I mean, why not do it in, in the U.S.?
3: Because the, because that's where I mean the market is here, and the ability to corrupt uh, law enforcement, to obtain the chemicals, and to um, uh, you know apply the kind of lethal force that you would need to you know protect your profit um, margins and your business model, all of that uh, is in Mexico. So I, I think you know there while there's like a, a fear that that they could start sort of setting up. In the United States, the way that the cartels, as, you know, as many listeners in California know, we're like, you know, growing marijuana and, and, you know, on public land in California, there's a fear that they would start to do that. But I think generally, the you know, the calculation remains that it's just safer, more profitable, easier, more manageable to do it on the Mexico side of the border and then traffic to the dr- smuggle the drugs into the United States.
0: Did you say that they're they're using sort of federales to get some of these chemicals, the raw materials?
3: no they, not that they're they're using them but they're able to uh bribe them, know, buy, bribe, bribe them or in some cases use them i mean we've seen time and time again that um you know there are operational components of the of the cartels who are um who are police officials themselves um and they are either they are either you know seizing drugs and then and then selling them or looking the other way or carrying out hits and executions on behalf of of the trafficker so um, you know, law enforcement and, and uh, crime in Mexico is, is is horribly intertwined. And that is obviously one of the biggest challenges facing Mexico.
0: All right. Let's go back to the phones now. And we're going to go to Berkeley and Sabina or Sabina, you're next. Welcome.
6: Hi. Um, yeah, I'm a physician. And one of the things that I haven't heard discussed at all in this entire discussion, not just today, but over the last few years about fentanyl and opiates, is the fact that during the Bush administration, The pharmaceutical companies managed to convince the Bush administration to make it mandatory that every physician in the United States takes 12 hours of continuing medical education uh, courses about um, pain prescription. And basically the message was you're not prescribing enough, prescribe more, prescribe more Tylenol with codeine, prescribe more Vicodin, prescribe more Dilaudid, prescribe more um, Percocets, prescribe more. And that is a nidus of this entire problem. We were throwing hundreds of tablets at our patients, and now we will barely give 10 tablets to our patients Mm. because our our licenses are being followed in terms of how we prescribe medication. Mm. And the the core of this problem is actually that moment Mm. in the history of the pharmaceutical companies and the federal government and the medical professionals.
0: Scott, could you, Scott Heim, could you react to that? It sounds like uh, what uh, Sabina is saying is it's kind of a overcorrection in a sense.
5: I mean, she's absolutely right. I mean, that's that was the genesis of how this all began, and there's been a lot written about it. There has been, you know, books written about it. Sari and I wrote about it in our book about how Purdue Pharma principally changed the conversation around pain in America uh, by by uh, paying doctors, uh, other medical professionals, by doing huge advertising campaigns, by appealing to uh, the, the entire medical community, uh, by using uh, front groups, etc., cetera, and, and getting people to, uh, to prescribe more. And, uh, and they were incredibly successful at, at, at changing the entire culture around pain and, 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 and medicating pain. And uh, and and so doctors began, you know, they were being rated on 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 whether they were treating pain effectively or not. And, you know, to this day, when you go into a doctor's office, you'll still see this little chart that has little faces on it. And, you know, it's like, will you describe your level of pain? Well, that was like the brainchild of, of the marketers of Purdue Pharma and some other uh People in the in in involved in that opioid uh, industry in the very early days. So she's absolutely right. And then all these other companies saw this market that Purdue Pharma had created with its OxyContin uh, time release uh, tablet, and they all jumped in. And and there are so many other manufacturers that that realized there was money to be made uh, in in this space. Yeah, all right, Sabina, thanks so much. It's,
6: it's, it's It's not just the issue of money, it's also the issue of the fact that we had to spend 12 hours of our time taking classes that told us we were deficient in how we manage pain. It's not just about money. It's about doctors being forced to spend hours in classes where they were effectively told you need to prescribe more pain medication.
0: Yeah. And, that and that's
6: what I have not seen written or talked about.
0: Yeah. Interesting. That
6: very specific moment of that year yeah. where we all had to be told prescribe
0: more. Yeah, interesting. All right, Sabina, thank you so much for that call. Um, You know, we've talked a lot about the problem, and some of our listeners are saying, well, what do we do about it? Uh, And one listener says, what's the path to solving the problem? Everything the cities of San Francisco and San Diego have tried has failed. What is the plan? Do we send addicts to remote prisons that serve as detox centers where the drug is not available and provide training to uh, employees? Um, Sari Horwitz, what do you think?
2: You know, it's a tough one, because as Scott and Nick have written and talked about, it's flooding across, fentanyl is flooding across the border, and um, our federal government's really unable to significantly stop the supply. And so it comes down to the demand. And I want to go back to the point I made earlier. It's going to start with a much more robust effort on educating people about fentanyl and how dangerous it is.
0: Yeah, and another listener writes, there was a lot of media coverage about people getting addicted by taking opioids prescribed by their doctor now there are more legal restrictions on prescriptions, as Sabina was saying, but I think it would be much better for people to get, uh, be able to get opioids legally from their doctors or to get it from some safe source legally so people know which drug and which dose. And then another comment uh, from Andy. My brother Marty overdosed and died on December 21st in 2020. He was a longtime addict struggling with efforts at recovery. We think that there was also fentanyl in the cocaine causing his overdose. Even experienced drug users are dying because a tiny amount of unknown fentanyl can be lethal. You're listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer in for Mina Kim. And let's try to get another call in here. If we can, uh, let's go to uh, Paul in San Francisco. You're next. Welcome.
7: Yes. Uh, San Francisco government has had uh, advocates have been en- enablers for people addicted to fentanyl living on the streets. And also, uh, we've had a DA here that refused to prosecute drug dealers. Many of the drug dealers are in the country illegally. And San Francisco has a sanctuary law that prevents us turning the names of convicted fentanyl dealers in the country illegally over the ice. So the cities have to cooperate with the federal government all along, uh, obviously, education, but also prosecuting these dealers. And San Francisco, for example, has refused to do it. So that's part of the problem. Well,
0: let me just uh, jump in. Uh, Sari Horowitz, Horowitz, let me uh, ask you about that. Because, you know, we now do, as I mentioned earlier, we do have a DA who has uh, – one of the first things she did was throw out plea deals that had been negotiated uh, but not yet accepted by the previous um Uh, DA, uh, is, you know, what can law enforcement do other than maybe send a signal to dealers on the streets, maybe to cartels? But, you know, that's not something really local government can do.
2: So this was a big issue in Colorado Um, in this particular case where five people died from a mass fentanyl poisoning. um, There was not a law on the books uh, for distribution of fentanyl causing death which would be a felony charge. Colorado didn't have that. And then after this um, incident in February of this year, uh, that really increased the uh, effort by law enforcement, by uh, the attorney general and by the local prosecutors to lobby the state legislature. And they passed a new law this year and this spring and the governor signed it. So now at least 23 states and Congress have passed similar legislation that increases penalties for dealers whose drugs kill users. And they don't have to always know that the fentanyl is in there, just if their drugs kill users. Now, let me just say that there are those who oppose these harsh penalties. Um, In Colorado, for example, legislators and activists fought the bill that the DA, uh, District Attorney Brian Mason in the Colorado case and others were pushing for. They fought it because they thought it, it really furthered the failed war on drugs and it targeted people of color it sent people struggling with addiction to prison rather than providing them treatment so this is these laws are controversial but controversial but this is something that law enforcement is now doing all over the country
0: yeah Nick I think it was you who earlier in the hour talked about the Obama administration sort of demoting the drug czar and then Trump getting rid of it altogether uh is that part of a you know, sort of a misguided, perhaps, but a, you know, kind of a reassessment of the war on drugs and and maybe, you know, realizing all of the damage that was done, especially to communities of color by that?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's not that Trump eliminated the drugs are position, but 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 wanted to, certainly. And 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 I'll say, yeah, that, you know, that the this this rise of fentanyl came following a period in which there was a a kind of a broader reexamination of drug policies and the criminal justice system, the legacy um, uh, of, of of incarceration. And so, you know, we're now at a place where I think um, I think people are desperate for the federal government to do something. But for the past, you know, 10 years or more, we've been thinking about the war on drugs as a failure or the idea of a of a muscular federal response as something, uh, undesirable or ineffective, and so we're kind of at a crossroads in which you know there's 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 now a debate like you know how how harsh to be again how do these do these penalties work what's the right balance between treatment and 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 and, and law enforcement and punishment can we really make a difference and so unfortunately we have to sort all of this out figure this stuff out right in the middle of the worst uh, you know most lethal drug crisis uh we've ever faced and 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 you know we're the time is is not on anyone's side um and and so Um, You know, all of these things are going to have to be sorted out as we go forward and and sort of stumble our way through this crisis.
0: Yeah. Another comment from uh, Jill writes, please don't leave pain patients out of this discussion. The pendulum has now swung back so hard that pain patients have to beg or get illegal meds just to stay alive. It pains me to hear people be so glib about patients wanting their pain recognized and treated. Uh, Very complicated uh, topic, as Sabina pointed out earlier uh, in the hour with, uh, you know, how doctors are being educated and, you know, kind of uh, were taught to kind of move away from pain medications, which, you know, may have been well intended, but as often unintended consequences. Well, I want to thank uh, all of our guests this hour. Again, the series from The Washington Post is called Cartel Rx. Nick Miroff, reporter covering the Department of Homeland Security. Also, Scott Haim and Sari Horowitz, two investigative reporters with The Post. Thank you so much for the series. Really important. And uh, let's hope more people read it. And let's hope we can come up with some solutions going forward. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. very much.
0: This segment was produced by Caroline Smith. I'm Scott Schaefer here today for Mina Kim. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day.
6: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
1: This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way